You're listening to Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists, sponsored by the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. I'm Corey Oakley, the Assistant Chief of Fisheries Management for the Inland Fisheries Division. And I'm Ben Ricks, Coastal Region Fisheries Supervisor. We are fisheries biologists who are avid anglers. We want to link the work we do as biologists to your fishing. Our goal in this podcast is to use the information we have as an agency to help you catch more fish and learn about our state's great aquatic natural resources. All right, guys, we're back. Welcome to another episode of Better Fishing with Two Ball Biologists. We got Corey here. Hello, hello. And today we got David Goodfred. Hello, everyone. So David, he's our District 8 biologist. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you guys to get here <laughs> from New Bern. It was quite, quite the adventure. Well, you think Western Raleigh's a long ways. Let's and- be honest. And let's be honest, we're a long way west of Raleigh. <laughs> we are a long way. We're almost in Tennessee today. So I didn't even know my truck knew how to get up and down hills that are this steep. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, we're in the western part of the state. We're with David Goodford. He's the District 8 bio- newly appointed District 8 biologist. So congratulations there. Oh, thank you very much, guys. Appreciate that. And we're thrilled to have him in that capacity. And We have been looking at smallmouth bass today and having a big time. But before we get to that, David, why don't you introduce yourself? So I'm uh, originally from Middle Tennessee, and I hope that your listeners still listen after that. So give me a chance. They they might have just shut it off right now. I feel like I drove way past Middle Tennessee to (laughs) get here. (laughs) So let's not, barring that, don't hold that against me. We passed Nashville on the way to smallmouth. Yeah. But, you know, there's some pretty decent uh, smallmouth fisheries in that part of the world, too. And, you know, before you can drive and your summers are free as a kid, you have a lot of opportunity to get in things. Some of those things aren't good. Some things are good and fun. And one of those things for me is I started stumping around a creek and have vivid memories, even of my grandmother taking me to a bridge crossing and letting me go at it. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I caught fish, you know, sunfish of all kinds, largemouth, spotted bass, and even smallmouth. And so we've been doing this for a while and enjoy every bit of it. So it goes way back. So your grandma would drop you off and yeah. just, I'll see you on Tuesday? No, she or? wouldn't go eat a bucket of chicken and leave me, no. She, it's one of those things, she'd sit there and wait. And I think that's the, the really cool part about it. And sometimes, even today, if I walk under a bridge and look up and squint just hard enough, sometimes I still see her waving, which is pretty cool. I can appreciate that. That's cool. My grandparents would drop me off at the pond and do the same thing. So I can definitely appreciate that fondness. and it's. Probably why I do so much work with ponds. <laughs> yeah, it might be. Especially now that you guys are emailing me all your pond questions. Holy and it's, smokes, pond questions. And it's great. We're happy to help. And there's a lot of folks that kind of have that desire to have a good pond. And we're getting all kinds of questions about that. But today, we were fishing streams. We were primarily, even though we caught a few other things that I wasn't expecting, primarily looking for smallmouth bass. Yes, and we're blessed in this part of the world. You know, Western North Carolina certainly has a lot of smallmouth bass streams, and that can range from a variety of opportunities like what we experienced today through good old-fashioned manual labor of legs, wading up them. We also have some great float fisheries to take advantage of, too. Gotcha. So I grew up bass fishing. I grew up striper fishing. I was down East Boy. I went to Alabama. I grew bass fish there, but I really have had... I guess, limited exposure to smallmouth bass. And even more, this was my first time stream smallmouth bass fishing. So this was pretty, too. Yeah. pretty interesting to me. I've done some stuff on some of the reservoirs, you know, live bait fishing with shad. And that, I mean, that's fun, but this is a whole different animal. So let's talk a little bit about what we did today, Dave, if you don't mind. Just kind of walk us through what we were doing, why we were doing it. Yeah, yeah. So we hopped in a small creek here in Western North Carolina, and it's a good fishery. And we wanted to give you guys just the opportunity to get in the water. One, it's hot, you know, relatively speaking, not as hot as you coastal guys and Piedmont guys. It's not sure. hot, not anyway. Close. Right, yeah. No. 88 degrees up here, we can feel it. But anyway, so it's refreshing, hopped in the creek, and really tried to target some specific habitats that these critters generally like to stay in. And it's a lot of action. You know, sometimes you're just catching a variety of species, but once you kind of see 
how many smallmouth bass are in some of these places, it's a lot of fun and keeps you wanting to come back for more. Yeah, I mean, we caught a lot of, I was kind of, what was most impressive to me is just the number yeah. of smallmouth bass. Now, you know, there, because it is a smaller stream, this is not the seven-pound smallmouth bass no. that you see in the Midwest or anything like that, but there's numbers, numbers are plenty. And it's amazing to me that you can have this many predatory fish in a stream. And I mean, you can see the things that they're eating, but there's still a good amount of these fish out there. So it's a lot of opportunity. Absolutely. You know, fishing sometimes is about expectations, right? What are you targeting? How big are they? And so when you move to this part of the state or want to fish to this part of the state and travel to this part of the state, that expectations, yeah, this isn't Canada. This isn't northeast and so to catch three and four pound smallmouth in these particular streams that's a rarity it can happen but looking for action 10 inch fish 12 inch fish we've got a lot of them and heck when you hook that 17 incher you're going to remember it oh yeah you know the thing that you know i've been up north fishing for smallmouth a few times and and they're bigger fish obviously you know sure. they're three to five pounds and and they're a lot of fun to catch i'm not knocking them at all but there's something about being in the mountains wading in a stream that it's quiet. You're kind of to yourself. And you catch a 14-inch fish in the current that we were in today on light tackle. You're going to know it. You're going to know it. It's a fun fish to catch. And I had a blast today. It was it was wonderful. So North Carolina, we're blessed with a variety of bass species. But what makes smallmouth special? Why do people seek them out so regularly? I think, you know, there's several appeals to them. They've been called the gamiest fish that swims, and they're kind of known for their stamina and their fighting ability. They jump, which is classic of many black bass, so they're acrobatic. And, man, when you hook them on light tackle, and like Corey said, you get them in current, you got six to eight-pound test line and a light-action rod, you're going to know it, and it's going to take you a while. That's a lot of fun to me, and I think a lot of people see that same yeah. thing. I tell people all the time, when you catch them, they're the fish that doesn't give up. I mean, like the one of the last fish I caught today, dumb thing swam between my legs. I mean, it was running all around, you know. You're a pretty big guy, Corey. I am a pretty big guy. Thank you, David, for noticing that. Glad you're not blind. Appreciate that. Just saying. Yeah. Slightly large. It's okay. He's a tall fella. You know. And a little wide. It's okay. <laughs> I'm good with it. So I think that is one of the neatest things about these fish is even – I don't want to say they're small because these fish are healthy. It's a healthy population. But the growth rates aren't what you'd see in a highly productive river or reservoir elsewhere. So it is a quality fishery compared to other streams and other and like what it can produce. So it's all, like you said, it's all relative, David. And I think that's an important thing. I don't want people to hear. I mean, this is a world-class fishery. My whole life I've heard about coming to the mountains of North Carolina and fishing the New River is probably yeah. one of the most popular places. And people come up here, they fish. It's a fun getaway. It's a target-rich environment where people can get away and be productive. And it's not, I mean, there's obviously, after today, I can tell you there are some technical aspects of it. But it's not so technical that you can't have success with a little bit of forward planning and knowledge, you know. Yeah, you don't have to feel like you're, you know, Kevin Van Dam or Iconelli or the Big Shots to be able to hop in a stream with some light tackle, some general baits that are even available at Walmart, and you can catch fish on them. But I think what Corey said to me really stands out in these type of experiences. Most people think of mountains in western North Carolina. Trout eventually comes to mind, and it should, right? I mean, there's a heritage here, a lot of wild populations, special populations. But when things warm up this time of the year in the summer and it gets hot, well, that fishing kind of wanes, if you will. And here's another opportunity for folks to get involved with. So it's, there's a seasonal nature of it, and it's something different. And, heck, if they fight the way they do, I want to give it a try, you know? After today, I mean, if you like fishing, you'll love this. Yeah. It's catching. It's catching. I mean, because it's – and. You know, today the conditions were really good. It's been dry up here for a little while, so the water's really clear. And you can literally watch your bait come across the water, and you'll see the smallmouth come up out of the depths or come off of a rock and come out and hit your bait and take off and run with it. And that visual part of catching these fish and seeing all that is where I grew up and where Ben grew up, you don't really get that. 
you don't get to watch the bait come along and then, you know, fish come out of the depths to hit it because all our water's muddy. And so that part of it is kind of neat too, I think, is being able to see that happen. Well, and the last thing I'd like to say about the special or uniqueness of this is that these are native fish. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, as part of that, they're unique. So they've been here as long as the mountains have been here. And part of why they're here is because of the cooler water that they require. Not cold water like trout, but not uber hot water like we have right now down at the coast. It's 89 degrees. Bath water. Yes. But they do need a little bit cooler water for their life history. And they're a very unique fish. But that shouldn't really take you off your game if you're thinking, well, I can't do that because they're still a bass and they still eat crawfish and worms and minnows and all the things that bass eat everywhere. You know, they're still a bass. They're still a predatory fish. And so some of those tactics that you've used elsewhere will work here. You just maybe want to downsize it a little bit because of the stream nature because they are looking at smaller baits as well. That's right. And you mentioned a a key point not too long ago that these populations, you need to run smaller than some of our neighboring states because our streams aren't as productive. And so some of these fisheries, believe it or not, Corey and Ben, you know, you catch a fish and it's 12 inches, it could be five to six years old. So yeah. life's hard out there in some of these streams because slow growing. Slow growing, we're yeah. higher elevation, things are cooler, food's not as abundant, and because of that, you know, they're gonna be generally smaller. But man, some of these places like like we got into today, there's lots of them. So it's constant action, you know. I mean, today I stood in one spot and caught twenty fish. Right. Didn't move. Yeah. You know, now it was a really good spot, obviously. Sure. You know, not every spot on the river is gonna be like that, but using the same bait over and over again. I just sat there and watched my line until it moved, and there they were. So there's still a lot of fish out there, and I think that's the action part of today was probably why I said, if you like fishing, you'll love this. The action part of it is really, because I grew up sunfish fishing on the coast, you know, bluegills and red ears, and I loved it. And so it, it reminded me a lot of that today, just the fish are a little bit bigger. You know, you catch a 14 or a 15-inch smallmouth, it pulls a lot better than some of the sunfish that we catch. Yeah, I mean, same thing for me. I grew up wade fishing the Roanoke for redbreast and largemouth bass, and there was a lot of today that kind of, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously it was a different panorama for sure. Mm-hmm. But as far as the tactics and what we were doing, I could have switched places with my 15-year-old self. And actually, my 15-year-old self probably would have done a little bit better on the waiting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got out of the river today, and I thought, mm, I'm going to feel this tomorrow. Yeah, I'm a little tired. Yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little tired. tired. That's because I sit behind the desk. It's not because I'm super old, but I'm a little old, too. But might anyway. be a little both. Yeah, might be both. <laughs> so let's talk about what we did today, David. Walk us through the baits that we used, kind of the general setup you would want for fishing these areas, and just kind of walk us through kind of how you approach the water and, and uh, or a day of fishing. Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, this time of year, I think it's important, like any typical bass fishing in the summer, you want to be there early because generally the bite's really good early morning hours. So that first sunup type time period, at least those first four hours where you have light conditions, tends to be pretty rapid pace stuff. There's a good chance if you come to a good hole, do a good presentation, get the right drift, fish the right lure, odds are you're probably going to catch something. And once the sun gets high, it's hot, sure, they slow down. But still at that point, you can alternate baits just like you would on a reservoir, fish a little deeper, go outside a deeper hole, get some of these rock ledges and stuff. And those fish really are kind of Lying and waiting to see what comes by, and as aggressive as they are, they'll come out from underneath that oh, stuff yeah. and hit it. You mm-hmm. know how many times that happened today, Corey? I saw that multiple times today for sure. Oh yeah, I think based on what I saw today, if like you're trying to learn how fish behave, this is an awesome yeah, experience. Yeah, you got to watch it because for sure. you can yeah. see, you know, because it's shallower, you can kind of see kind of the way these fish set up, and these fish don't set up any different than fish other places. It's just that you can see that. So you could do this, and then you could learn how these fish behave, and then you could take that to wherever you are, and it would work. Not only that, you got to see the things that they're eating's behavior, too. Right. You got to see a lot of the bait fish, how they behave, what they're doing, what their patterns are. And when you can mimic that, smallmouth or whatever you're fishing for will come along and probably eat it. 
That's right. Because my biggest tip in fishing is always you need to think like a fish mm-hmm. and not like a fisherman. And so the more you understand fish behavior, especially that predation behavior or that reaction strike, either way, the better off you know, okay, if I present my baits this way, maybe I'll get a higher likelihood of getting a strike. And, you know, you mentioned you're talking about morning versus, you know, as the sun got higher. What we noticed today on the river was first thing in the morning when we first got started, you might catch a smallmouth in three, four inches of water, which is an oddity to me. Like I thought, no, they wouldn't be in that. But lo and behold, they are. And they're also in deeper water, too, at the same time. They're kind of everywhere, basically, is my point early on in the day. But as the sun got higher, they tended to hide behind rocks. They tended to be in deeper water. So you got to think about those kinds of things. And you mentioned if it was a cloudy day, it probably wouldn't have affected them nearly as much, and they probably still would have been all over the river. So Absolutely. I mean, there's times out there that if it's hot, middle of the day, I mean, you're struggling, but you're still catching the fish here and there. But usually they're in the best of the best habitats. Deep pools, lots of rocks, places they get out of the cover. But man, you get a, a rain event come in or a thunderstorm head, and it starts to build that pressure change. It's like anybody that's fished in any different places. Usually, something like that happens. It just triggers something, those fish, to bite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what happened when I sat in that spot and caught, you know, close to 20. It was, the sun had gotten high, but the water I was standing, I mean, it was just a prime habitat. It was deep pool, and I didn't have to do a whole lot. I just took that Ned rig and threw it in there and just waited for them to come along and hit it. I didn't even really have to move it. Is it okay that he says Ned rig? Are we... Getting rid of too many secrets for you, David. I think he's okay there for sure. That's popular bait. And Ned Rig is pretty common for smallmouth bass fishing. But, I mean, you know, you're matching what they're eating. So, think about crayfish. So, you match anything, you know, from crankbaits that look like a crayfish to Ned Rigs that look like a crayfish. Even though you might look at a Ned Rig and think, man, this thing don't look like nothing. To that fish, it looks like a crayfish. Those TRDs that Z-Man makes is the most, I tell people, it's the most know-nothing bait I've ever seen in my life, and I've caught more fish off of that bait than probably anything else that I can throw in my tackle box. And they're tough. Yeah, and you can't get rid of them. That's right. Multiple fish on the same bait. You buy a bag of their baits, and you'll have that bag for years, at least at the rate I fish. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, you're trying to match what's out there. So you're matching little fishes. So swim baits of any kind that are kind of small in size, you know, very light. And anything that kind of looks like a crayfish that you would think looks like a crayfish, they're not super picky. I think they can be, but like when they was on this morning. It's on. You don't even have to be really good at presenting it to them. You know, you just got to get it somewhere within four foot of them and they'll come find it and run it down. It's really amazing how aggressive. I mean, how many times did you guys catch a fish today and you're fighting it, bringing it in, and there's two or three swimming oh. with it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, multiple times a day. You know, we had somebody else fishing with us today, and I caught a fish, and the fish behind it was bigger than the one I had on. And I just held it in the water, and I said, hey, throw in there behind it. And he threw way on past it, but he brought the bait into the spot, and lo and behold, that fish behind it turned right around and hit that bait, and he hooked up. So it's a pretty cool experience to see that. That kind of stuff happened. Oh, yeah. Especially because you're literally seeing yeah, it. And you're watching it right in front of you. And like most of the time, the fish aren't eight foot from you, you know, when you catch. I mean, they're eight to ten feet from you. I mean, sometimes they're further away. But by the time they get up to you, you know, they're right there beside you in the water swimming around. You're seeing their behavior. It's pretty cool. I think you guys really hit it on the net. When you're talking about presentation of baits, right, it's kind of like that match the hatch philosophy in the trout world. You know, you want to match those insects to what they're eating. Many of these streams, it's the same thing. So we have several shiner species and all types of minnows, crayfish, like you said. And I think any time that you can imitate what's around you, it's just going to put you in a better position to catch something and be consistent with your catching. Because there are times, like you said, if they're feeding very aggressively, it probably doesn't matter a whole lot what you're throwing. But if they're keyed on something, it can make all the difference in the world. No, I totally agree with that. And it was... Today, they wanted crawfish and minnows, about three inches. Yep. And that seemed to be what they wanted. Yeah. So tell us a little bit, David, about like what type of rod you'd use, what type of line you think is appropriate for the type of fishing that we were doing today. Sure. I think since the fish tend to be smaller, like we've talked about, I like to have fun with it, right? I mean, that's part of me is to kind of downsize. And so anywhere from a six foot to a seven foot, 
medium light, light action, even a medium ride. Some, you know, depends on the brand. Some of those are a little bit more bendable than others. But in general, six to seven foot, light action, medium light. And as far as pound test, six to eight. I generally prefer eight just because it gives you a little more oomph when you need to set the hook through soft plastic baits and soft plastic jerk baits and things like that. And so your breaking potential is a little less there. And because these rivers are so clear, like you and Ben are talking about and you experienced today, long casts are essential. So that light line really lets you to get that bait out there further than it normally would, like say if you're fishing heavy mono or braid. Yeah, we definitely, we saw a lot of fish. We caught a lot of fish. We spooked a lot oh, of fish lot today. Of fish. All of a sudden you move your foot wrong. You're like, oh, there goes one. And uh, sometimes it was close, and sometimes it was six, ten feet away from you when you spooked them, and it happens. So I think it's important to tell our listeners, you know, we fished probably, what, about a mile, mile and a quarter, mile and a half of stream, something like that today. I mean, that's what it seemed like coming back to the truck. And, you know, in that mile, mile and a quarter, we caught 80-plus fish. We caught a few other species, but it was predominantly smallmouth. There's no telling how many smallmouth are in that stretch of stream because we spook so many. There's so many you don't catch. There's so many habitats you don't even fish because you're fishing over here and then you walk up and you didn't fish behind you and, you know, all that kind of stuff happens. And and so there are a lot of predators in these systems that are ready to eat baits if you go fishing for them, and at least in my opinion. For sure. For sure. No, it was a neat setup. You know, before we even stepped in the water, I told you guys, it's a little term that I like to use, don't overlook the absurd. What I meant by that was do-nothing places. Maybe it's a boulder that has a slack spot behind it the size of a trash can lid, and it may only be six inches deep. You can catch a 14-inch fish out of that stuff. The tendency is, well, let's just keep on walking, forget that type of habitat because it's not deep, it's not a classic pool. But in these type of streams, man, they can be just about anywhere. Yeah, that's what I found, you know, because I fished a lot of Piedmont streams for Roanoke bass and for largemouth and that kind of stuff. and that's not necessarily true where I fish in the Piedmont. You kind of have to target certain habitats. You know, if I saw six inches of water, I'm just walking on by it. And today, I mean, probably the first three or four fish that we caught were in like, I mean, it was just right above ankle deep. And I was like, man, he was right. You said that. I was like, eh, I don't know about that. And after we caught the first four light, I was like, well, he was right. <laughs> they are everywhere. I think it's important, you know, as we're trying to think like fish, like they get into pools. But they swim from pool to pool looking for things to eat and this, that, and the other. And if you catch one between pools and you put a bait in front of him, he's going to eat it the same as if he was where he was supposed to be. So, yeah. right. They're not right. solitary. They're moving. I mean, they're like every other fish in the world. I mean, you know, they're moving to find food and moving for other, other habitats to And some know, of these pools in. are not very big to begin with. So, no. as they're cruising around looking for bait, it takes nothing for them to get outside of the right spot, whatever that means. And I get it. Maybe your listeners are like, come on, six inches of water, four inches of water. It's crazy, but it was true. And it sure. is true. And then, you know, the 20 fish hole that we had today, obviously it was a deep pool. Yeah, it was probably over my head. But, and the point is, yeah, would you catch 20 fish out of a little slack pool, you know, that's four inches deep? Probably not. But the point is, you could catch one. And that's certainly more than I think your brain intuitively tells you as you're walking up the stream. Like, I need to get to that next perfect deep pool. Well, not necessarily. Don't overlook this stuff along the way. I think that is something that fishermen, especially new fishermen, maybe a classic mistake that they sometimes make. And one that I definitely have made throughout my history fishing is that I've overlooked smaller spots because I wanted to get to the really good looking spot. And now I do right the opposite. I know that everyone's looking for the big spots. And so I'm looking for these smaller spots. And yeah, it may not hold as many fish, but it may hold the fish that I need. It may hold one fish that haven't seen a bait in a while or two. It may have a little bit bigger fish because it hasn't had the same amount of pressure on it. So that's definitely something to look for. I think when, you know, you're talking about habitats and not overlooking habitats, of those deep pool habitats today, in that mile and a quarter, what did we see? Three? Like three of the really deep pools sure. that are really nice and held a, you know, quite a bit of fish. We saw three in a mile and a quarter. So if you're only targeting those, you're going to walk a lot. A lot. And miss a lot of fish because we might have caught 25 to 30 out of those three pools, but the bulk of our fish didn't come from that. 
you know, it came from somewhere else. And like you said, I feel like we're beating a dead horse a little bit, but they were just kind of everywhere. And you shouldn't dismiss it. If you see it, you know, if it's an undercut bank or if it's in the shadows or if it's a run, I mean, they're in a lot of runs. I mean, just a run that's a foot and a half deep, you know, something like that, that you think, man, that's kind of fast water. I don't think a bass being it, you know, they're there. Yeah, and if you're fishing a reservoir and have that philosophy, you might think, well, a point is a point, right? I mean, it goes from 5 to 30 feet, whatever it is. That's a classic point. In a river like this, it can go from 6 inches to 2 feet, and we consider that a quote-unquote point. Yeah. That's something you need to take notice of and fish it hard. Yeah, there's a lot of that in the river today. It was a lot of what I would call ledge habitat, but the ledges aren't very deep. The ledges are, like you said, a foot and a half difference. But they're hanging right on the inside of those ledges. And as soon as that bait would come across, you'd, you'd see them dart out and take it and run off with it. So it's pretty neat. So we talked about the gear we need. We talked about crawfish and minnow imitations and, you know, six to eight pound test line. I think it's very important that you have the right footwear to get up and down the streets. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering if you were going to move on from gear no. or if you were going to jump both feet in, not to be a pun, but. Yeah, my buddy Ben here, he brought a pair of wading shoes, which you do need wading shoes. I will say, I mean, they're very helpful. You could wear old tennis shoes and all that kind of stuff, but honestly, get you a good pair of wading boots with felt soles on it, that grip rocks and all that good stuff so that you have good balance. But my man Ben brought him, brought in some wading boots. How old were these wading boots? They were brand new. I'd never worn them, but they were probably 13 years old. Okay, they're 13 years old, but you'd never worn them before. And within about 30 minutes, he lost both souls. I'm not sure. I mean, he was soulless. He was going down the river soulless. The river took my souls. The river took your souls. I think 30 minutes may actually be giving a little more credit than we're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it might have been less than that for sure. All of a sudden, I look down and my, my <laughs> foot's floating past me, you know. <laughs> That's a problem. Yeah, I was like, uh, this won't work. So now he's walking on sock feet, you know, going down because he's got no souls. And then he's like... Man, my reel's kind of junky. It's kind of gumming up. I've slipped and my reel got wet. And somehow... That ruined it. It got gummy and it did not want to perform right. So now he's got a gummy reel. And about halfway through, he's like, man, I at least got to go get a different rod and reel. So he walks back to the truck, gets him a new pair of shoes, though. You know, he got him a new pair of shoes. So he got he got his soles back. I got a, David loaned me some souls. Yeah, and David loaned him some souls. You were healed. Yeah. yeah. And he comes back with a, maybe, I don't think it was a brand new rod and reel, but it was new to the day, right? New to the day. Next thing I know, this man is, is asking bait out, and he's got the handle in his mouth. And I was like, what are you doing? And he's like, uh, the other side of my reel fell off in the water, and now it won't stay in the yeah. reel. Yeah. So he casts out with no handle on and then as soon as he flips the bell he puts the handle in and starts reading and he caught fish and he caught fish gotta adapt and overcome he adapted and overcome i give him credit for that he caught a lot of fish today the embarrassing part to me and corey has <laughs> been fishing with me i have nice stuff you know <laughs> you do you do i, I day was not no your, expense was not a shining moment for your stuff and for some reason when i picked the rods that i picked i got the two lemons out of my bunch yeah, so here's the other lesson. If you're going to go fishing, especially if you're going to travel what seemed like many moons to get here, you know, maybe you want to buy a new reel for your trip or something. Yeah. Right, yeah. My reel had only been used twice. You know, yeah. it was a pretty new reel, and it, it worked out pretty solid for me today. And my boots were pretty new, too. Yeah, but I still caught fish. You did. We overcome. It was fine. I did what I had to do to catch fish. But the lesson is do a little preparation. Make sure you're prepared not that you didn't i'm not saying that you things just happen things sometimes. happen i mean i would not have brought things that i thought were break while i was not here personal i would not have bought 13 year old wading shoes i don't care if never been used before i knew they would be dry rotten because that's just how they are i would have bought new wading boots before i came i'd never worn them but once <laughs> I'm an Eastern boy. We don't deal with this felt sole mess. <laughs> yeah, right, like, right, right. We just have rubber soles that stay good for a long, long time. Yeah, what's a rock? Yeah. There's a lot of them up here. The question was, do you have waiting boots? It was in an email. And I said, yes, I have waiting boots. Problem solved. Now I know the answer to that question is, no, no, I need a fresh pair. 
you know. <laughs> Didn't you get a pair six months ago? I don't remember. I need another fresh pair. <laughs> Give me some new ones, would you? Yeah. But lesson learned. And it didn't matter. You caught fish. You probably caught more than anybody today. So I watched you catch quite a few, and I was like, oh. The biggest fish I caught, I could hardly reel in, and that was what aggravated me. Is, <laughs> yeah, you know, your reel so gummed up. <laughs> normally, you know, I fish. I got a boat with rod lockers and rod holders. And, oh, yeah. I've been on it. It's nice. Half the time, it looks like a floating porcupine. I got so many rods on the thing. And so if I have a rod that goes south on me, I just put it down and pick up a different rod. Well, the very first question I asked today was, I brought two rods. Do I need to bring them? And David's like, no, you don't need two rods. You should have brought two rods. I should have brought three rods. Yes, you should have brought a third. That's <laughs> I should have just had them all sticking out of my belt or something. So what I should have done was said, well, let's go halfway up the hill, and I'm going to just leave a rod right here. Yeah. That's what I should have yeah. done. Should have walked a, half a mile because you knew it was going to wear out halfway right. through the yeah, well, that'd been right. But anyway, so the good news is every fishing rod and fishing reel that I've ever bought since I got married, I tell them when they show up at the house, I present them to my wife. This is a pro tip here. You present the fishing gear to your wife and you say, look what I got for you. All my fishing gear is not mine. I just borrow it from my <laughs> lovely wife. And so... My wife is about to get two more fishing reels. <laughs> <laughs> she deserves it. Congratulations to her. Yeah, she deserves it. She's <laughs> been working really hard, and I want to reward her with, with new that. reels. So, you oh, know, that's nice. Husband tip maybe you want to take her out to dinner when you do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably a good idea. Don't just drop the reels off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But no, great day. I had some issues, which Corey took the light in, which is great. Hey, man, I have been there. I have been when my soles floated off to my shoes as we I'm walking have. up the stream. Yeah. And there to go down the river, and you're like, well, I got to go chase them down, but I don't have any feet now. You know. So the so. funniest part about that whole thing was I thought I was only missing one sole until I got back to the truck and realized <laughs> <laughs> that I didn't have a sole on either one of my shoes. So if anybody finds my soul, two <laughs> bald biologists at ncwildlife.org. Yeah. Oh, me. What a mess. <laughs> but no, it was a lot of fun. And that's the thing is you do this stuff and whether or not it goes good or whether or not it goes bad, it makes for a fun memory, a fun adventure, especially if you're not from the area. And that's just part of it. You know, it's an activity you can do by yourself. If that's what you so desired to do, I mean, I'd let somebody know that I was doing it, you know, so you have some kind of float plan kind of thing. But today there was four people in the stream and there was still plenty of room. I mean, we all caught fish. I mean, everybody caught fish. So it's something you can do with friends if that's what you so desire to do. And it's also something that you can do, you know, you don't have to have a $700 setup. Man, it's low tech. Yeah. So you can do it. It's relatively easy. It's not super technical. So anybody can do it. And then the other thing I... And when they're chewing, you really can do it. As I was doing this, I mean, it has some parallels to mountain trout fishing. It has some parallels to some of the wade fishing in the Piedmont, you know, in the Hall and the Eno and those oh, yeah. kind of things. It has parallels to some of the wade fishing that you can do on the coast that nobody really thinks about, like in the Tar River. It's all just walking around in a stream catching fish at the yep. end of the day. So yep. it's not, if you're listening to this and you're like, I'm never going to the mountains, there's still a take-home message that there's probably a piece of water That's near you right. that you can walk around in and catch fish. It's in your backyard. So you don't have to drive many moons like we did to get here up and down hills. There's probably somewhere relatively close. You know, the coastal streams are different. You don't have to have felt soles. You can just have rubber boots and rubber tennis shoes. Make sure you don't sink too far. You do want a sandy substrate because there are places that are more swampy or silty and you might need a tractor to pull you out. Yeah. But as long as you find those sandy habitats, you can walk for a long way. And the tars is probably maybe one of the better examples. Yeah. And the cool thing about the tars, you can walk around and find shark's teeth, whale bones, and catch fish and you can make it a big adventure for everybody. Yeah. And the Noose has got places like that too. The Roanoke has places. The Cape, Cape Fear, Fear does. does as well. So there's a piece of water that's near you that's weightable is what I'd really like for you guys to know. And this smallmouth episode is just an example of that. That's right. 100%. Totally agree. 
done it all over the state and enjoy it every time I do it. Oh, yeah. Like I said, I'm getting a little older, so I start to feel it a little more than I used you to. You enjoy it in the moment. And enjoy then... it in the moment, and then as soon as it's kind of over and you sit for 30 minutes, you're like, ooh. Well, a good pair of boots would help with that. That's what I learned. <laughs> yes. You know, the older I get, good shoes in general. Good shoes in general. Are a good decision. David, let's focus in on smallmouth bass because, you know, that's what we're here for, and you're the smallmouth guru. He put us on them, I got to say that. And that's kind of where I was going. If I was an angler and I was looking for smallmouth bass, where should I be looking? You know, I'm not asking for your best spot. I'm just saying, in general, where do I need to look for smallmouth bass in streams? I think it's fairly well known when you talk about key smallmouth bass fisheries in North Carolina. The New River is going to be top of the list somewhere in there for sure. The French Broad River Basin as a whole is full of smallmouth bass fishery. Maybe you don't want to travel as far and you want to try some of these populations that have been there for decades. They may not be native, but they provide an absolute amazing sport fish experience that were stocked back in the 70s or even before that. You might want to go to the Broad River, you know, down in Cleveland County. Heck, we even see smallmouth bass guys in Columbia, South Carolina at times. We're talking water temperatures get 90 degrees down there. So these things are tougher than people give them credit for. So it shocks people when you say the Broad River, Cleveland County, that's low elevation. There's some big fish in there. Now, it's not super abundant. So again, we go back to the expectations. But if you want to catch fish, start there with some of those premier places. And then also check out our website at ncwildlife.org and click on fishing. And in there, we've highlighted some other places within those basins that you might want to give it a try. I'd also add a couple of others that are closer to everybody else that doesn't live in the mountains. There's the Dan River. Oh, yeah, sure. The Dan River. I have electrofished the Dan River, not fished the Dan River. And there's quality, like similar to the fish that we saw today. It's a little sandier and a little flatter than what we fished today. But in general, it's kind of the similar habitats and that kind of stuff, but very easy to fish. The Uwari River down in the Uwari Mountains, down between, you know, Troy, it's Montgomery County and Stanley County, that area. Yes. They have smallmouth, and those are not as big as what we saw today. You know, most of those are kind of that 8 to 9 to 10 inch. 10 inch would be on the big side, you know, but they're there, and they're abundant, and they like to eat, so... Good opportunities around that you don't have to come all the way to the mountains to fish for smallmouth. So, you know, you're on top of a mountain. That's trout water as a general rule. And as you move down the water, the, especially in the summertime, the water gets warmer. And basically, smallmouth bass are kind of going to be at that interface where trout stop and the water warms up. And that's where you're first going to see smallmouth. But as these guys both said... There's definitely opportunities to see them much further downstream. So We caught a trout today. We, we sure did. We caught a rainbow trout today that was further downstream than he probably wanted to be. I was <laughs> sitting on a, on a rock playing with my reel. <laughs> you were sitting on a rock going, man, what's going on? Trying to get my thing ungummed. <laughs> it was a mess, but still caught fish. That's okay. right. A lot of them prevailed. You've done a tremendous amount of work on this species in our western third of our state, along with other biologists, but you've kind of helped lead some of this stuff. Tell us some of kind of the important things that you think about when you think about smallmouth bass population. What have you learned in that time frame of, you know, because for a long time, riverine smallmouth, we didn't really know a lot about. It wasn't until the project that you and several other biologists spearheaded that we really learned a lot about smallmouth. So I think our listeners would probably learn something from it and be able to apply that to their fishing too. I guess the first thing, Corey, it's an excellent question that comes to mind really is how resilient this species is. And what I mean by that, I've already mentioned what they can tolerate in terms of warm water, but also how they can vary by size depending on where you are. Now, in general, they can be smaller in our mountain streams, and we've talked about that. In other places, you have the opportunity on a rare occasion, mind you, to catch 17 to 20-inch fish. It can happen. I wouldn't say it's going to happen all the time, but there's the ability for that to happen. And in addition to that, we talked about the different rates of growth and the slowness of some populations opposed to others, but they're all smallmouth. They fight equally hard. They're everywhere in terms of close to something. 
They may not be as strong, but heck, if you're within several cities from the mountains away, you can get there in a decent amount of drive within a day. And so it's not like a big trip type of thing. I mean, you can get it done. And sure, if you're extended past that and the coast, like where Ben's from, then you got to plan for stuff like that to get way out here. But there's a lot of opportunities for them. And I think it's just kind of taking advantage of that. I'm thinking back to that project and it's still ongoing. Y'all still study them every year. You rotate rivers and do the surveys and all that stuff. And I think that's real neat. And one of the things I think I've kind of learned from it is that everywhere you look, you found them. Maybe you didn't even know that they were there, but you kind of assumed, well, maybe they are, but you're not sure. You know, and it can be from really wide streams, you know, really like French Broad River type yeah. stream, you know, which is a pretty good sized river as you sure. get further down it towards Tennessee to really narrow streams. And it's just about kind of elevation and water temperature and where they are. And I don't know that most people in our state know that we have that many smallmouth bass populations, but we really do. And some of the things that kind of opened my eyes is kind of the lack of access in some of these areas. Mm -hmm. Sure. And when I say like a map, I'm talking about formal access points, whether they be with us or the commission. And in general, many of these places, landowners are very nice. They wave to you if you float by or something like that. Some of them can be very remote in nature. So you get in some of these places and you feel like you're the only person on the earth. It's kind of the wild trout experience, but the smallmouth starts to come in. So it gives you times for that tranquility, solitude, and then catching a lot of fish. Who doesn't like that? Well, and I think, I mean, I know that there's some simple ways to catch trout, but also if you're a novice angler, the trout game can be a little intimidating because you got to have, you know, there's flies and which fly do I throw in? And da, 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 da. This gives you a, that similar experience of being in the mountains and catching these fish, but at the same time, it's, I don't want to say easier, but it's less technical. It's not as intimidating, especially to a new angler. And I think that's another thing that, to me, it makes it a, something that I want to tell people about. Yeah, let's go there. Maybe your listeners like, all right, so tell me here, what are we talking about when you say unsophisticated gear, anybody can do this? Let's start simple, right, Corey and Ben? Let's go some five basic patterns that you want to imitate. We've talked about crayfish, so you can tube jigs, one-eighth-ounce jig heads, NO-type baits, flukes, always a good idea, right? A fluke is always a good idea. It's a fluke. Yeah. You rig it right with a one-aught hook. You're doing it's good. It's amazing. Fluke is about as good a bait as you could ever fish. It'll catch fish anywhere, in my opinion. Soft plastic stick baits, whether it's a Senko, you know, PRD, you've mentioned, Ned Riggs. So when I've been up north, sorry, I cut you off, but yeah. when I've been up north, when we got in flow, we would just wacky rig, you know, a worm and just let it float. And they love that. Have you ever tried that up here? I have. Okay. It works good, too. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And sometimes that can be the primary pattern of the day, just a, a soft plastic worm. Either rig that way, wacky rig, or traditional Texas rig can be very good. And then, you know, top water bait sometimes early morning can be very good. Not always, but it can be very good times. And, you know, pop bars are really good choices, small ones. Even walk baits, stick baits, if you will, small spook juniors and things like that can have their place here. But really, I think it's imitating kind of what's there and small swim baits and flukes and stuff like that is really what you're talking about. Gear-wise, put it in a small bag that you can get at Walmart, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we toted small bags on our bikes and had everything we needed and get you a set of pliers to go with you so you can cut line and get hooks out and all that kind of jazz. And the rods and reels don't have to be fancy. Sure don't. They have to work. They do. <laughs> they do have to they work. They do have to work. <laughs> they do have to work. And then a good pet of footwear. And I think, I would say if any of that's probably the most important is, is good footwear just for that ankle support. And, you know, these places can be rather slippery in nature. So a good pair of wading boots. I agree, because when I slipped, I got my reel wet, and after I got my reel wet, it didn't act the same way. <laughs> Just saying. Ben said when he fell in, he's like, "It's what happens when your feet aren't under you." It's like, yeah, that's exactly what happens when you're. Yeah, the reason aren't. why I fell over was because my legs were not underneath me. <laughs> that's that's, right. that's what happens. It's easy to do, though. I mean, I've done it a million times. I did not do it today, but it happens to me more times than not, for sure. Yes, it does. But no, today was a great day. 
Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed seeing a piece of North Carolina that I don't really get to see that often and talking about the fisheries that, to me, are somewhat unique just because I don't deal with them. But really, I mean, it's still just fishing, and it's not that complicated. And I think this is a great opportunity that if you've thought about it, you can figure it out. It's not the, the albatross that maybe you think it is. And I would encourage you, if you're thinking about doing it, come up here and give it a try. Or at least try the stream that's down the road from your house and see how that goes. Because yeah, it's go all, catch a red breast. It's go all catch a wade rock fishing. bass. Absolutely. You know, go catch a largemouth. Once again, you can a beetle spin and a spinning rod in a wade in a stream, you'll catch a lot of fish. If doing all that. you threw was a beetle spin, you would never starve to death. Nope. You'll whack them. It's very true. <laughs> Absolutely whack them for sure. Yep. Handy bait. So if if people want to learn more about the work you've done and that kind of stuff, are the reports available or are they, how do you do that? They are available. If you go to ncwildlife.org and go to our website and click on fishing, you're going to see a brand new webpage that I, along with a team of biologists, made black bass webpage there. And it will have links to all the reports once you click on smallmouth bass as a species and really tell you about kind of all we've studied really in the last several years going back way back, even up to current times. And so there are reports there. You can check it out as uh, well as any other type of information. Well, that's great because, I mean, sometimes we get those requests from questions that we have from our listeners. And the new webpage is great. It talks about all the black bass species. So black bass are the family of basses that are largemouth, smallmouth for spotted bass, Alabama bass, for those of you who don't know. And that webpage is really good. It's brand new. I uh, probably hadn't been up more than a couple of months, maybe something like that. And uh, it's got a lot of great information about all those species. It talks about the invasiveness of Alabama bass and the detrimental effects they're having on some of our native, talking about having detrimental effects on our smallmouth. But most of that's happening in our reservoirs. It's not happening in our rivers yet, and hopefully they won't. Do you think, in your mind, David, that Alabama bass in the rivers would be as bad. I mean, I know that's a crystal ball. That's not something you know. But we do know in reservoirs that when Alabama bass get in a reservoir, it's pretty much death nail for a smallmouth. The good news right now, based on our current genetics results, is most of the places that we've looked and we've received those results back, these populations are staying pure. So meaning we don't see any evidence of hybridization with Alabama bass or many other black bass species at all. And so that's especially important when we talk about the native areas of these streams. And then our concern with that, Corey, it's an excellent question. It's a hard question to answer. But for me, I'm hoping that these systems are so different than where Alabama bass are from that once, and hopefully not, but if they are introduced, they wouldn't be able to thrive in these type of environments like they would, say, a reservoir where we see their problems manifest themselves. And I have a question about that. It's, I don't know if David has an answer to this or not, so it's not a, I'm not setting them up to knock it out of the park or not. I just have a question. Do you think the altitude may have some sort of impact? I was talking with some folks a little while ago about how there's Coosa bass in certain places in Alabama, or, well, yeah, now the Coosa bass, and they've been there forever, and they haven't really had a problem with crossing with Alabama bass where they're native. As I was talking to him, I thought, well, maybe there's hope for some of our mountain streams just based on an altitude situation. So I'll put it this way. So the Broad River in Rutherford and Cleveland County, it showed our worst evidence of Alabama bass presence that I'm currently aware of in our state in terms of a river. And excluding one hybrid that I believe was with largemouth, which occurs, it's a black bass, they mix, it just happens, right? If you exclude largemouth bass, I think the total sample only showed 8% of Alabama bass genetics within those samples. And why is that important? Well, it's important because it's below Lake Lure. Lake Lure, when we tested was 95% mixed with Alabama bass and a host of other black bass species in terms of smallmouth. So if that river can be below the lake and have that less of genetic compromisation, I have a pretty good feeling that 
maybe elevation habitat, these rocky streams, as opposed to where Alabama bass should be from, hopefully they'll be okay. Yeah, it's a crystal ball. I get it. And it really is a guess because once you put a fish outside of its range, it doesn't act the way it did when it was at home. Right. You know, right. We as humans don't act the way when we go visiting oh, yeah. other places. We don't act the way we do at home. We become you know? tourists. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the take home is, and that people that listen to our podcast have heard this a bunch, don't move a fish. Don't take a fish from one place and put it in another. Because you never know what effect you're going to have. We're seeing that with Alabama bass. For the love of Pete, don't move a spotted bass or an Alabama bass because the detrimental effects it can have on our native black bass species can be very high. And so we want to keep these streams as pure as possible. And that, honestly, that's really the reason I brought it up was not to get the crystal ball answer, but was, you know, we really need to remind our folks that we don't need to be moving fish. Also, blue light special. Blue light special. It is illegal to stock fish without a permit. So don't, even if you have the best of intentions of not wanting to kill a fish, you need to release it where it came from and not somewhere else. Yep. You don't want to kill it, take it back to where it was and put it back. I have one more question and then we'll probably need to get to some listener questions. Yeah. It's come up kind of bailed a little bit, but we've talked a little bit about stocking. And I feel that if we don't at least talk about stocking smallmouth bass, we're going to get questions about stocking smallmouth bass. So are we, as a state, stocking smallmouth bass? We've tried, right? We are currently trying to develop a couple of areas where it could be a potential. And it's to address the areas and the problem that Corey mentioned with Alabama bass being moved, specifically Lake James in, in my district. And the first question to be able to stock smallmouth bass is, can you raise them? <laughs> Which seems to be problematic. That's problematic. <laughs> and right. so that the production and our capacity are hatcheries, meaning we're raising a lot of fish now, whether that's great recreational opportunity or it's to raise something in response to these emerging invasive species that are popping up everywhere because things are being moved around like they shouldn't be. And so... Can we raise smallmouth bass to get the numbers we need where we think we would see a population level return, meaning we may see a fishery stay in Lake James? Right now, it appears that the answer is no, because it's been hard. It's just been hard. Yeah, we're still looking at different tools and trying to figure out how to raise smallmouth in our hatcheries, but it has been difficult. We've done it for a couple of years now, and getting pure brood fish is very difficult because we have so much introgression of genetics from Alabama bass in a lot of our systems now. And you need a certain size in hatchery system. I mean, like all the fish we caught today would be worthless in a hatchery system. They're just too small. They're not big enough. You need pretty large fish, and that makes it problematic. And so we're still working at it. We haven't given up. I don't think we have given up, and we're just trying to figure out the different tools that we have available to it. And things come along. You know, new research comes along. We find out new things and new tools, and we'll implement those when we get them. But Right now, it's a tough sled for us. And I think that's okay. We can't do everything. And to be honest, sometimes the question of is, well, why? We have to answer the why do we need to stock so that we can decide if we should stock. Because if there's no way to stock ourselves out of a problem, then it just becomes we're on a treadmill, so to speak, where we're throwing fish and it'll never get any better. And honestly, you know, stocking smallmouth in a reservoir, it probably is being on a treadmill and you know if i was being straight up it's being on a treadmill we're just trying to keep them on the landscape so to speak we're not really trying to restore the population because as soon as we take the stocking off the table the alabama bass are going to come right back and do the same things they've always been doing with them we don't stock the rivers because we don't need to you know a lot of people ask us why didn't you stock river a with whatever fish and today we're talking about smallmouth but like today we saw we don't need to we got plenty of fish out there and you really don't need to, you're just wasting animals and wasting effort on our end to raise those animals when you have a perfectly good population that we saw today. That's exactly right. I think stockings looked at as a, as a silver bullet in many cases, but, but certainly there are opportunities to do it when it's effective, like you're saying, Corey. But if you have a thriving population, I mean, small fish, medium fish, large fish. Yeah. We saw it all today. We saw it all today. And when you have that, right. you've got something good going on, so stocking's probably really not going to do a whole lot. And that message to our listeners is the same thing like in pond management. If you're seeing small fish, medium fish, large fish, 
You don't need to go out and buy fish to put in your pond. And that's the same thing we're looking at. If our populations are good, we have no reason to go out and stock a fish. That's just wasting effort and wasting money that we could put somewhere else. And that's the same thing at home in your backyard with your two-acre pond. If you got bluegills swimming everywhere, you got bass of all sizes everywhere, be thankful and go fishing. Well, a healthy population with a fleshed-out age structure, fleshed-out small, medium, large fish, that's a healthy fishery. And to be honest, those fish are going to produce more fish for that system than we can as a hatchery. or You can if you're buying fish for your pond or what have you. So, you know, that's really the game is what we're trying to do is create those healthy fisheries and hopefully keep them that way. So anything else, David, while we got you? That's all we got here, man. I really appreciate you guys having me on. It's been a blast. I enjoyed every bit of today. Man, we had a great day today, and we can't thank you enough. You're a great host. You're a good guide. You told us exactly what to do. You saved I mean, my souls. You saved his souls, <laughs> and it's just been a fantastic day. I mean, it was great weather, a beautiful river that we fished today, and it was just a wonderful time, so I can't thank you oh, enough. Yeah. It was my great. pleasure, guys. My pleasure. So we're going to do some listener questions. My favorite. Let's do it. We're going to run through these real quick. Again, if you have questions, you can email us at twobaldbiologists at ncwildlife.org, and we will answer your question. And if I haven't answered your question, it's because it fell through the cracks, but I'm diligently trying to answer questions. Corey helps answer questions. We'll send you, if I'm not the person to give you the word straight from the horse's mouth, I will forward your request on. That seems to be working, and we really appreciate y'all's questions. We really appreciate the exchanges that we have with you guys. It's been great. It has been really good. It's helped me kind of see what's important to you guys and helps me kind of get the word out if we have some questions. But before we do that, we're going to talk about Mr. Overby. He emailed me, and he said that he had heard that there is a do not touch or handle fish advisory on the Chowan River. And I grew up fishing in Sarum Creek, learned how to fly fish there, throwing popping bugs. There are no, to my knowledge, there are no do not touch or handle fish advisories anywhere in the state of North Carolina. There are some consumption advisories. You can do a quick Google search and it's on our webpage. It's in our regs digest, but you can also just Type in in the Googles, you can type North Carolina Fish Consumption Advisories, and it'll take you right to the Department of Health and Human Services. It'll be right there. Probably the next link down will probably be our page or soon there, and it'll walk you through those. And we always advise that you heed consumption advisories. They're there for a reason. But as far as as do not handle the Chowan, you can handle the fish from the Chowan. There have, especially recently, and if you're listening to this podcast and it's not the heat of the summertime, typically in the summer, there are some algal blooms and phytoplankton blooms that happen in the Chowan River, and it happens almost every year. And so my guess is that he had heard that there was some algal blooms and they were concerned about that, and that may be what's related to this. But it's just kind of the natural thing is exacerbated in years like this that are hot and dry where we don't have a lot of rain, but there's always some level of, of algal blooms in the summertime. But you can still touch the fish. But the fish are, are wholly touchable. So, as I am looking for my next question, I just want to give y'all a secret. We're working on some things for you guys, and I don't want to say it yet, but it may involve a fluke-style bait and it may involve... <laughs> I don't want to say it yet, but I'll say what it is. It may involve something along those lines, maybe even mine and Corey's own special color. So just... We're excited. We're working on it. It may fall through. <laughs> yeah, it may be a bust. <laughs> but that's what we're shooting for, and so don't hold us to it, but we are trying to move some in that direction to, to give our cooperators something. And if you send us a good question, maybe, maybe there might be something that comes in the mail to you. This one, I think David can handle. Mr. Josh sent us this one. He said, if trout are cold water fish, why are they stocked in Piedmont parks around Charlotte and Concord area? Do they survive the summer or are they pretty much fished out before then? 
The end of that, I think, is a good answer. It's simply to provide a recreational opportunity when water temperatures will support trout. So bringing the mountains to the Piedmont, here's some trout, something unique for that area. But yes, when it heats up, our intent is to provide a short-term recreation opportunity. Folks can go enjoy something they normally don't get to catch and take them home before it gets too hot. Right. I'll also add to that that they don't make it till the summertime. Those fish are caught out in probably about a, less than a month from the stocking. It is extremely popular. You go to one of these stocking events, it doesn't matter what part of the Piedmont it's in. You go to these stocking events, there'll be... 30 to 100 people waiting for the truck to get there because the usually the cooperator that we're dealing with, the city park or whatever, announces that the truck's coming. And so people are waiting there with their fishing rods, waiting to catch them, and they dump them in the water, and people catch them almost immediately. <laughs> it's a little nuts. but They're hungry, and they're ready to please. But it's a great opportunity for people in the Piedmont that may or may not be able to travel to the mountains to get the opportunity to catch mountain trout. They're great to eat. And that's what we're providing them for. We're providing opportunities for people to go and catch that fish, take them home, eat them. So just like very similar to some of the things we do here in the mountains. So it's just an opportunity for them to do that in the cold water months. So the next question is from Mr. Roman. He's very interested in fishing the brackish areas of our rivers. And he's asking, how do you target fish in an area that's so transitional? You know, I mean, one day there could be marine fish there, and then two weeks later it could be wholly fresh. All it takes is a wind change. Yeah, sometimes it's a rain event, sometimes it's a wind event, sometimes a big storm comes through and it changes everything, you know. And I have been, my whole career has been a biologist in these zones, and in Alabama and in two districts in North Carolina. And to me, that's the magical thing about those areas is that there's a host of fish, there's a host of forage species. You would not come to a mountain reservoir and use a DOA shrimp to catch bass with. Well, you might. Might. Might not be that successful, but you might. Right. But in some of these areas, you're using shrimp imitations to catch bass. and it, That's right. Because they're feeding on shrimp. It's only by understanding these dynamics that you can be an accomplished angler in these areas or to know okay, I need to move, if I'm looking for bass or if I'm looking for crappy, I might need to move upstream right now mm -hmm. or I might need to move to the backs of these creeks because the mouse are really salty right now. So really the long and short of it is you have to understand the rainfall and the wind and the tides, depending on where you're depending at. Where you are. And once you get a handle of how that saltwater ebbs and flows is really how you can become an effective freshwater angler in these habitats. And I'll also say that a lot of these species are going to overlap. Sure. You're not just going to predominantly catch nothing but saltwater fish and then not catch a freshwater fish. You can catch a largemouth and a speckled trout in two casts easily in a lot of these coastal areas, depending on the time of year and depending on the conditions. But I think that if the question was, how do you catch them or something like that, it's still the basics of thinking like a fish, which we talk about all the time. What would a fish be keyed on? What are the baits that are in front of you? You know, are striped mullet in front of you or bogeys, you know, menhaden in front of you? Or is it some other shiner species in front of you, you know, that you see swimming around? Start there because that's what we did today. We looked at the fish that we saw in the river. We knew that. This is the kind of baits, you know, swim baits or Ned rigs or whatever. This is the kind of thing that we need to be using. And that's what we did. And we started catching fish. So I can tell you that if you can find a creek that is fresh enough to have bluegill, but salty enough to have grass shrimp, you can find some big bluegill. They love them. So that's definitely something to think about. But also, most of the time, the especially the closer you get to the coast, the deeper water is going to be saltier and the freshwater kind of rides over top That's of exactly it, especially right. in a heavy rain event. So if you're having trouble finding bass, but you think they should be there, you may want to fish shallower, fish stumps that are up near the bank instead of stumps that are off deep off a ledge, because it could be that those fish are selecting to not be in that higher salt. And in certain times of year, we've talked about this on the podcast, certain times of year, that wedge can become what we call dead water. And a lot of that becomes kind of low in oxygen, and a lot of fish will disappear from that. So sometimes you have to get out of that a little bit 
in order to find fish as well. And then finally, the other thing that I say all the time, other than fish need water, mm-hmm. it's not dead, is if you make a move, if it's not happening, maybe because you're in some dead water, if you make a move, make a big move. Don't just move to the other side of the creek. Get on up there. You've always told me that. And every time I'm fishing with somebody else and we're like, oh, it's time to make a move. I'm like, well, it needs to be a big move. I say that every time because you've said that over and over and over again because going from point A to point B and they're like 20 yards away, probably not going to be that much of a difference. I mean, it could be, but probably not. If you're catching fish on one side of the well, creek, that's true. Yeah. you should probably try the other side but of the creek. But if you're not catching fish, it's not likely that they're going to be all over right. the other that's side. That's right, for sure. And so the reason why I say that is, you got to get somewhere where there's a different bait. There's different amounts of bait. There's different this, there's different that. And so it's not likely to change close. It's likely that if you have to move, you have to get in a completely different habitat and look for different things. And if you do that, then you're fishing, you know, you're fishing in completely different water. And so you have all new opportunities, not just the same opportunities in a different spot. With that, I don't have anything else to add. No, I think it's been great. Thank you for the podcast, David. Thanks for everybody that listens out there, and we will see you next time. Great. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission's podcast, Better Fishing with Two Ball Biologists. For more information, please visit ncwildlife.org or email us at twoballedbiologist at ncwildlife.org. 